39, L, and who later during the Reformation, on the ground of religious differences, divided into two yet smaller states. The relation between size and inaccessibility is most strikingly illustrated in the high Himalayan ranges west of Kashmir and north of the Punjab. Here is the Shinaka district, which includes the Kilas, Daryl, Tangar and other valleys branching off from the Indus, and which is inhabited by dards of Indo-European stock. Each Shinaka valley is a small cantonal republic, and each village of each republic is a commune managing its own affairs by an assembly. One settlement of only 12 houses enjoys complete autonomy. Besides the village assemblies there is a state parliament handling questions of general policy, to which each village sends representatives. One dissentient vote can defeat a measure. The majority cannot control the minority, for if one village of a state disagrees with the others, it is free to carry out its own policy, even in the matter of foreign alliances. Here is home rule run to seed. Small size is sometimes coupled with monarchical rule degenerating occasionally into despotism among aggressive robber tribes. The inaccessible Hunza Valley is occupied on opposite sides of its deep gorge by two rival states, the Hunzas and the Nagaris, whose combined population amounts to scarcely 25.000 souls, hostile to each other. They unite only to resist an invading force, while the Hunza Thumb is a tyrant. The Nagari ruler has little voice in the government. The Tibeto-Burman hill folk of the eastern Himalayas are divided into clans, and concede a mild authority to a chief who rules a group of clan villages, but only rarely is able to secure power over a larger district. The Kaja hills of Assam are broken up into 23 petty states, each under its own Raja or chief, who has, however, little authority beyond the administration of justice. Everywhere in mountain regions appears this repugnance to centralized authority. Protection by environment obviates the necessity of protection through combination. The spirit of clan exclusiveness, the absence of a common national sentiment, characterize equally the tribesmen of mountainous Albania, of Persian Luristan, and Highland Kurdistan, along the rugged upcast area which forms the western boundary of India from the Khyabar Pass to the sea. British officials have had to negotiate with the native Patan and Baluch, Jervis, Assemblies of the chief men of the countless clans into which the tribes are divided, as the only visible form of authority tolerated, combination must be voluntary and of a type to exact a modicum of submission. These requirements are best answered by the confederation, which may gradually assume a stable and elaborate form among an advanced people like the Swiss, or it may constitute a loose yet effective union, as in the famous Samnite confederacy of the central Apennines, or a temporary league like that of the ancient Arcadians or the group of confederate sheikhs of Bilad al qabail the country of the highlanders in mountainous Yemen, who in 1790 established a republican form of union for defense against their more powerful neighbors. The power of mountains to protect makes them asylums of refuge for displaced peoples. This fact explains the confused ethnology which often characterizes these isolated regions, especially when they lie near or across natural highways of human migration. As a tide of humanity sweeps around or across the mountains, a branch stream turns into a side valley, where it is caught and held, there it remains unaltered, crystallizing in its seclusion, subjected for ages to few modifying influences from without, its people keep their own language and customs, little affected by a totally different race stock similarly placed in a neighboring alcove of the mountains, lack of communication engenders an endless multiplication of dialects, as we find them in the Alps the Caucasus, in Kafirstan of the Hindu Kush and in Nepal, diversity of speech, itself a product of isolation, 
reacts upon that political and social aloofness of mountain folk, to emphasize and fix it. From this principle it follows that the same highland region shows strong differentiation and marked social individuality from one district to another, and from one valley to the next, despite a prevailing similarity of local geographic conditions. In fact, the very similarity of those conditions, strong in their power to isolate, present the conditions for inevitable variation. A mountain region gets its population from diverse sources, or, which is quite as important, at different times from the same source. For instance, Nepal received contingents of Rajput conquerors, dislodged from the Punjab, in the 7th century, the 11th, and finally the dominant Gorkhas at the end of the 18th. Today these represent different degrees of amalgamation with the local Tibetan stock of Nepal. They are distinguished from each other by a diversity of languages, and a multiplicity of dialects while the whole Piedmont of the country shows a yet different blend with the Aryan Hindus of the Ganges Valley, who have seeped into the terrain and been drawn up, as if by capillary attraction, into the hill valleys of the outer range, the Vindhyan range and its associated highlands, long before the dawn of Indian history, caught and held in their careful embrace some of the fragile and original tribes like the Kolarian Ho, Sandals and Korkas. Centuries later the Dravidian Bills and Guns sought refuge here before the advancing Indularians, and found asylums in the secluded valleys. Finally those same northern plains whence the Dravidians had come, after the Mohammedan conquest of central India in the 16th century, sent flying to the refuge of the hills a large contingent of Hindus of mingled Dravidian and Aryan stocks, but stamped with the culture of the Ganges Basin. These occupied the richer valleys and the more accessible plateaus of the highlands driving the primitive guns and bills back into the remoter recesses of the mountains. Dravidians and aboriginal Kolarians survive in their purity in the wilder and more inaccessible regions, but in the lower valleys their upper classes show signs of mixtures with the Rajput invaders, while the lower classes betray little Aryan blood. Afghanistan, of disordered relief, set as a transit region between the plains of Mesopotamia, the Oxus and the Indus has a confused ethnology in keeping with the tangle of dissected plateaus and mountain systems which constitute its surface. Here we find three distinct branches of the Indo-European race, divided up into various peoples of diverse tongues and subdivided further into countless tribes, and two branches of Mongol Tartars scattered, as if out of a pepper box, from the Helmut to the Oxus, tossed in among diverse peoples of Iranic and Balka origin in hopeless confusion, the various Afghan tribes, separated from each other by natural barriers and intervening alien stocks, though similar in physical type, speech, religion and culture, had no sense of unity, no common political aims, while the appalling list of tribes constituting the population of the country offers little hope of Afghanistan ever developing national cohesion. Kafiristan alone, which lies in the Hindu Kush range for the most part at an altitude of 12.000 feet or more, harbors in its recesses many remnants of primitive peoples, speaking various languages and dialects, strangers alike to any native affinity or political union. It is a mere agglomeration of ethnic fragments, in which the people of one village are often unable to converse with those of the next. Relief has fashioned the ethnology of the Caucasus in the same way. No other equally small area in the world contains such a variety of peoples and tongues, differing from one another in race, language, and customs so fundamentally as the Caucasus, from the heterogeneous survivals of extremely old ethnic stocks, lodged in the high valleys, to the intrusive Russians of the lower Piedmont, 
the Caucasus might be called an ethnographical sample card. The rugged configuration of the Alps, from the Rhone to the Danube, has preserved the broad-headed Alpine race, which was perhaps the primitive stock of Central Europe. The great river valleys leading into this massive highland, like the Rhine, are, in Andotage, show the intrusion of a long-headed race from both north and south, but lofty and remote valleys off the main routes of travel, like the hither Rhine about descent highs, the little stanza fall of the upper inn, and the Passiertal of the upper Adige above Moran, show the race preserved in its purity by the isolating environment. Here each segregated lateral valley becomes an area of marked linguistic and social differentiation, only where it opens into the wider longitudinal valleys are its peculiarities of speech and custom diluted by the intrusive current of another race. Switzerland has received three different streams of language, and broken them up into numerous rivulets of dialect. On its small area of 16.125 square miles 41.346 square kilometers 35 dialects of German are spoken. 16 of French, 8 of Italian and 5 of Romanche, a primitive and degenerate Latin tongue, surviving from the ancestral days of Roman occupation. The yet smaller territory of the Tyrol has all these languages except French, whose place is taken by various forms of Slavonic speech, which have entered by the western tributaries of the Danube. Rarely is a polyglot mountain population able to work out its own political salvation, as the Swiss have done. More often political union must be forced upon them from without. Oftener still, when the Highlanders are primitive survivals, ill-matched against the superior invaders from the plain, they are doomed to a process of constriction of territory and deterioration of numbers, which proceeds slowly or rapidly according to the inaccessibility of their environment and the energy of the intruders. Deliberate and enterprising nations, like the Chinese, Turks and Indularians long tolerate the presence of alien mountain tribes, who remain like enemies brought to bay in their isolated fortresses. The conquerors throw around them at their leisure a cordon of settlement, which, slowly ascending the Piedmont, draws closer and closer about the mountaineers. The situation of many mountain tribes reminds one of a besieged stronghold. Russian wars against the Caucasus have rightly been described as protracted sieges. The heroic history of Switzerland in relation to its neighbors has been that of a skillfully conducted defense, both military and diplomatic. The territory of China is dotted over with detached groups of aborigines, who have survived wherever a friendly mountain has offered them an asylum, variously known as Lolos, Mansa or Myauchs. They have preserved everywhere a semi-independence in pathless mountains, whither Chinese troops do not dare to follow them but the more numerous and patient Chinese agriculturalists are in many sections slowly encroaching upon their territories, driving them farther and farther into the recesses of their highlands. The same process goes on in Formosa, where the Chinese have gradually forced the native Malays into mountain fastnesses among the peaks which rise to 14.000 feet 4500 meters. There, split up by internecine feuds into numberless clans and tribes, ignorant of one another's languages, raiding each other's territories and the coastal plains tilled by Chinese colonists. They await their doom, while the Piedmont zone between has already given birth to a typical border race of half-braids, more Chinese than Malay. To have and to hold, is the motto of the mountains. Like remote islands, they are often museums of social antiquities. Antiquated races and languages abound. The mountaineers of the southern Appalachians speak today on 18th century English. Their literature is the ballad poetry of old England and Scotland, handed down from parent to child. Clan feuds settle questions of justice, 
as in the Caucasus and the Apennines, religion is orthodox to the last degree, sectarianism is rigid, and Joshua's power over the sun remains in some lonely valleys and discounted. These are all the marks of isolation and retardation which appear in similar environments elsewhere. Especially religious dogmas tend to show in mountains a tenacity of life impossible in the plains, the Kafirs, inhabiting the high Hindu Kush mountains of Badakhshan, and apparently of Pelasgic, early Greek, or Persian origin, had a religion blended of paganism, Zoroastrianism and Brahmanism. One intruding faith has been enabled to dislodge the previous incumbent, so the three have combined, the great historical destiny of the small, barren, isolated Judean plateau was to hold aloof the chaste religion of the desert-bred Jews from the sensuous agricultural gods of the Canaanites, to conserve and fix it, if need be, to narrow it to a provincial tribal faith, to stamp it with exclusiveness, conservatism, and formalism, as its adherence with bigotry, for this is always the effect of geographical seclusion, but when all these limitations of Judaism are acknowledged, the fact remains that that segregated mountain environment performed the inestimable service for the world of keeping pure and indefilled the first and last great gift of the desert, a monotheistic faith, Buddhism, once the official religion of Korea but disestablished three centuries ago, has taken refuge in the Diamond Mountains, far from the main roads, there are dull, more of form of the faith doses on in the monasteries and monastic shrines of these secluded highlands, driven out of India. Buddhism survives only in the Himalayan border of the country among the local Tibeto-Burman peoples, and in Ceylon, whose mountain city of Kandy is its stronghold, the persecuted Waldenses, a heretic sect who fled in 1178 from the cities of France to the Alps, took refuge in the remote valleys of the Pelis, Chizone, and Ogrogni some 30 miles southwest of Turin, there, protected equally against attack and modification. The Waldenses have maintained the old tenets and organization of their religion. The mountain dweller is essentially conservative. There is little in his environment to stimulate him to change, and little reaches him from the outside world. The spirit of the times is generally the spirit of a past time. When it has penetrated to his remote upland, he is strangely indifferent to what goes on in the great outstretched plains below him. What filters into him from the outside has little suggestion for him because it does not accord with the established order which he has always known. Hence innovation is distasteful to him. This repugnance to change reaches its clearest expression, perhaps, in the development and preservation of national costumes. Tricked, which is crystallized style in dress, appears nowhere so widespread and so abundantly differentiated as in mountain districts. In Switzerland, every canton has its distinctive costume which has come down from a remote past. The peasants of Norway of the German and Austrian Alps, of the Basque settlements in the Pyrenees, of mountain-bound Alsace and Bohemia, give local color to the landscape by the picturesqueness of their national dress, with this conservatism of the mountaineers generally coupled suspicion toward strangers, extreme sensitiveness to criticism, superstition, strong religious feeling, and an intense love of home and family, the bitter struggle for existence makes him industrious, frugal, provident, and when the marauding stage has been outgrown, he is peculiarly honest as a rule. Statistics of crime in mountain regions show few crimes against property though many against person. When the mountain-bred man comes down into the plains, he brings with him therefore certain qualities which make him a formidable competitor in the struggle for existence. The strong muscles, and jaded nerves, iron purpose, and indifference to a luxury bred in him by the hard conditions of his native environment. 
Chapter XVII The influence of climate Climate enters fundamentally into all consideration of geographic influences, either by implication or explicitly. It is a factor in most physiological and psychological effects of environment. It underlies the whole significance of zonal location, continental and insular. Large territorial areas are favorable to improved variation in men and animals partly because they comprise a diversity of natural conditions, of which a wide range of climates forms one. This is also one advantage of a varied relief, especially in the tropics, where all the zones may be compressed into a small area on the slopes of high mountains like the Andes and Kilimanjaro. Climate fixes the boundaries of human habitation in Arctic latitudes and high altitudes by drawing the deadline to all organic life. It dominates life in steppes and torrid deserts as in subpolar wastes. It encourages intimacy with the sea in tropical Malays and Polynesians, and like a slave driver, scourges on the fur-clad Eskimo to reap the harvest of the deep. It is always present in that intricate balance of geographic factors which produces a given historical result, throwing its weight now into one side of the scales, now into the other. It underlies the production distribution and exchange of commodities derived from the vegetable and animal kingdoms, influences methods of agriculture, and the efficiency of human labor in various industries. Hence it is a potent factor in the beginning and in the evolution of civilization, so far as this goes hand in hand with economic development. The foregoing chapters have therefore been indirectly concerned with climate to no small degree, but they have endeavored to treat the subject analytically showing climate as working with or against or in some combination with other geographic factors. This course was necessary, because climatic influences are so conspicuous and so important that by the older geographers like Montesquieu and others, they have been erected into a blanket theory, and made to explain a wide range of social and historical phenomena which were properly the effect of other geographic factors, for a clear understanding of climatic influences. It is necessary to adhere to the chief characteristics of the atmosphere, such as heat and cold, moisture and aridity, and to consider the effect of zonal location, winds and relief in the production and distribution of these, also to distinguish between direct and indirect results of climate, temporary and permanent, physiological and psychological ones, because the confusion of these various effects breeds far-fetched conclusions. The direct modification of man by climate is partly on a priori assumption, because the incontestable evidences of such modification are not very numerous. However strong the probability may be, the effect of climate upon plant and animal life is obvious, and immediately raises the assumption that man has been similarly influenced. But there is this difference, in contrast to the helpless dependence upon environment of stationary plants and animals whose range of movement is strictly determined by conditions of food and temperature. The great mobility of man, combined with his inventiveness, enables him to flee or seek almost any climatic condition, and to emancipate himself from the full tyranny of climatic control by substituting an indirect economic effect for a direct physical effect. The direct results of climate are various, though some are open to the charge of imperfect proof. Even the relation of niagrescence to tropical heat which seems to be established by the geographical distribution of Negroid races in the Old World, fails to find support from the facts of pigmentation among the American Indians from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego. Nevertheless climate undoubtedly modifies many physiological processes in individuals and peoples, affects their immunity from certain classes of diseases and their susceptibility to others, influences their temperament, their energy, their capacity for sustained or for merely intermittent effort 
and therefore helps determine their efficiency as economic and political agents. While producing these direct effects, climate also influences man indirectly by controlling the wide range of his life conditions dependent upon the plant and animal life about him. It dictates what crops he may raise, and has it in its power to affect radically the size of his harvest. It decides which flocks and herds are best sweet to his environment, and therefore directs his pastoral activities, whether he keeps reindeer, camels, llamas, horses or horned cattle, by interdicting both agriculture and stock raising, as in Greenland whose ice cap leaves little surface free even for reindeer moss. It condemns the inhabitants forever to the uncertain subsistence of the hunter, where it encourages the growth of large forests which harbor abundant game and yield abundant fruits, as in the hot, moist equatorial belt and on rainy mountain slopes. It prolongs the hunter stage of development, retards the advance to agriculture, Climate thus helps to influence the rate and the limit of cultural development. It determines in part the local supply of raw material with which man has to work, and hence the majority of his secondary activities, except where these are expended on mineral resources. It decides the character of his food, clothing, and dwelling, and ultimately of his civilization, the very ground under man's feet. Moreover, feels the molding hand of climate. In one region a former age of excessive cold has glaciated the surface and scoured off the fertile loam down to the underlying rock, or left the land coated with barren glacial drift or more productive clays. In another, the cold still persists and caps the land with ice and snow, or, as in the tundra, underlays it with a stratum of frozen earth, which keeps the surface wet and chilled even in the height of summer. In yet other regions, abundant moisture combined with heat covers the ground with a pad of fertile humus while some hundred miles away drying trade winds parch and crack the steppe vegetation, convert most of its organic substance into gases, and leave only a small residue to enrich the soil. Rain itself modifies the relief of the land, and therefore often decides in a slow, cosmic way what shall be the ultimate destination of its precious store of water, a heavy precipitation on the windward side of a mountain range, by increasing the mechanical force of its drainage streams makes them bite their way back into the heart of the system and decapitate the rivers on the leeward side, thus diminishing the volume of water left to irrigate the rainless slope. Thus the hydra-headed Amazon has been spreading and multiplying its sources among the Andean valleys, to the detriment of agriculture on the dry Pacific slope, thus the torrents of the western Ghats, gorged by the monsoon rains from the Indian Ocean, are slowly nipping off the streams of the ill-watered Deccan. See map page 484. All these direct and indirect effects of climate may combine to produce ultimate political-geographical results which manifest themselves in the expansion, power and permanence of states. Climatic conditions limit the habitable area of the Earth. This is their most important anthropogeographic effect, that either pole lurks an invincible foe, with whom expanding humanity must always reckon, and who brooks little encroachment upon his territory. His weapon is the restriction of organic life without which man cannot exist. The geographical boundaries of organic life, however, are wider than those of human life. The consequence of this climatic control, therefore, is not only a narrowed distribution of the human race, but a concentration which intensifies the struggle for existence, forces the utilization of all the available area, and thereby in every locality stimulates adaptation to environment. Man ranks among the most adaptable organic beings on the earth. No climate is absolutely intolerable to him. Only the absence of food supply or of all marketable commodities will exclude him from the most inhospitable region.
His dwellings are found from sea level up to an altitude of 5,000 meters or more, where the air pressure is little over one half that on the coast. 17% of the towns and cities of Bolivia are located at an elevation above 14.000 feet 4,000 meters, while Aulagas occupies a site 15.700 feet or nearly 5,000 meters above the sea. Mineral wealth explains these high Bolivian settlements, just as it draws the Mexican sulfur miners to temporary residence in the crater of Popocatépetl at an altitude of 17.787 feet 5420 meters, from their permanent dwellings a thousand meters below. The laborers employed in the construction of the Oroya Railroad in Peru became rapidly accustomed to a work in the rarefied air at an elevation of 4,000 to 4,800 meters. The trade routes over the Andes and Himalayan ranges often cross paths at similar altitudes. The Caracoram Road mounts to 18.548 feet 5.650 meters. Yet these great elevations do not prevent men going their way and doing the day's work. Although the unacclimated tenderfoot is liable to attacks of mountain sickness in consequence of the rarefied air, man makes himself at home in any zone. The cold pole of the earth, so far as recorded temperatures show, is the town of Verkhoyansk in northeastern Siberia, whose mean January temperature is 54 F below 048 centigrade. Masawat, one of the hottest spots in the furnace of Africa is the capital of the Italian colony of Eritrea. However, Extremes both of heat and cold reduce the density of population, the scale and efficiency of economic enterprises, the greatest events of universal history and especially the greatest historical developments belong to the North Temperate Zone. The decisive voyages of discovery emanated thence, though the needs of trade and the steady winds of low latitudes combined to carry them to the tropics. The coldest lands of the earth are either uninhabited, like Spitzenbergen, or sparsely populated, like northern Siberia. The hottest regions, also, are far from being so densely populated as many temperate countries. See maps pages 8, 9, and 612. The fact that they are for the most part dependencies or former colonial possessions of European powers indicates their retarded economic and political development. The contrast between the Mongol Tungus, who lead the life of hunters and herders in Arctic Siberia, and the related Manchus, who conquered and ruled the temperate lands of China shows how climates help differentiate various branches of the same ethnic stock, and this contrast only parallels that between the Eskimo and Aztec offshoots of the American Indians, the Norwegian and Italian divisions of the white race. 0 degrees dot C 32 degrees dot F dot 20 degrees dot C 68 degrees dot F dot 30 degrees dot C 86 degrees dot F dot The zonal location of a country indicates roughly the degree of heat which it receives from the sun. It would do this accurately if variations of relief, prevailing winds and proximity of the oceans did not enter as disturbing factors. Since water heats and cools more slowly than the land, the ocean is a great reservoir of warmth in winter and of cold in summer, and exercises therefore an equalizing effect upon the temperature of the adjacent continents. Far as these effects can be carried by the wind, the ocean is also the great source of moisture, and this, too. It distributes over the land through the agency of the wind, where warm ocean currents, like the Gulf Stream and Kurosiwa, penetrate into temperate or subpolar latitudes, or where cool ones, like the Peruvian and Banguela currents wash the coasts of tropical regions. They enhance the power of the ocean and wind to mitigate the extremes of temperature on land. The warm currents, moreover, loading the air above them with vapor, provide a store of rain to the nearest wind-swept land. 
Hence both the rainfall and temperature of a given country depend largely upon its neighboring water and air currents, and its accessibility to the rain-bearing winds, if it occupies a marked central position in temperate latitudes, like eastern Russia or the great plains of our semi-arid west. It receives limited moisture and suffers the extreme temperatures of a typical continental climate. The same result follows if it holds a distinctly peripheral location, and yet lies in the rain shadow of a mountain barrier, like western Peru, Patagonia and Sweden north of the 60th parallel. See map page 484. Owing to the prevalence of westerly winds in the temperate zones and particularly in the north temperate zone, the mean annual temperature is high on the western face of the northern continents but drops rapidly toward the east. This is especially true of winter temperatures, which even near the eastern coast show the severity of a continental climate. Sitkan, New York, Trondheim and Pekin had the same mean January temperatures, though Pekin lies in about the latitude of Madrid, over 23 degrees farther south. Europe's location in the path of the North Atlantic westerlies, swept by winds from a small and narrow ocean which has been superheated by the powerful Gulf Stream secures for that continent a more equable climate and milder winters than corresponding latitudes on the western coasts of North America, whose winds from the wide Pacific are not so warm. Moreover, a coastal rampart of mountains from Alaska to Mexico restricts the beneficial influences of the Pacific climate to a narrow seaboard, excludes them from the vast interior, which by reason of cold or aridity or both must forever renounce great economic or historical significance unless its mineral resources developed in suspected importance. In Europe, the absence of mountain barriers across the course of these westerly winds from Norway to central Spain, and the unobstructed avenue offered to them by the Mediterranean Sea during fall and winter, enable all the Atlantic's mitigating influences of warmth and moisture to penetrate inland, and temper the climate of Europe as far east as St. Petersburg and Constantinople. Thus several factors have combined to give the western half of Europe an extraordinarily favorable climate. They had therefore greatly broadened its zone of historical intensity toward the north, pushed it up to the 60th parallel, while the corresponding zone in eastern Asia finds its northern limit at the 40th degree. Moisture and warmth are essential to all that life upon which human existence depends, hence temperature and rainfall are together the most important natural assets of a country because of their influence upon its productivity. The grazing capacity and wheat yield of southern Australia increase almost regularly with every added inch of rainfall. The map of population for the Empire of India clearly shows that a high degree of density accompanies a high and certain rainfall, except 